0: This episode of At The Table is brought to you by Restoration Games. You know them, right? The company that takes all those older games, redoes them, makes them better with games like Fireball Island and Unmatched. Well, if you're going to be at Gen Con, you want to make sure to go by their booth and check out their upcoming hotness. They have a full production copy of Return to Dark Hour, which I cannot wait to try, a full production of Key to the Kingdom, and... oh. This is why I hate I'm not going to be able to go to Gen Con. A prototype of Thunder Road Vendetta. Yes, the game that Tony and I have been wanting to replay and get remade for years is going to be coming to Kickstarter from Restoration Games. Thunder Road Vendetta is supposed to come to Kickstarter sometime in October, so keep an eye out for it. And again, if you're at Gen Con, go buy, test out all these new games that are coming out, buy some other Unmatched sets. And if you aren't going to Gen Con, then check out all the great games that's already released. For example, that Deadpool character that I reviewed in the last episode. If you like Unmatched, mwah, so good. To find out more about their released games, upcoming games, head over to restorationgames.com.
1: Hey y'all, it's time for another episode of Rolling Dice and Taking Names. Today, Justin Jacobson from Restoration Games and Scott Morris from GTS Distribution join the
2: guys to discuss logistics. Here, the experts talk about how the pandemic has affected game production, shipping, and prices, plus solutions for the future.
1: By the way, when I said experts, I meant Scott and Justin, obviously.
0: Welcome to another episode of Rolling Dice and Taking Names. This is our special at the table episode with everybody's favorite topic, logistics. My name is Marty. I'm Tony.
2: And uh, Tony, we got two very special guests tonight to talk about. Logistics. Well, you know, Marty, in my real job, I talk about logistics all the time, about moving crews from one region to the other to be able to restore power, get them hotels, move some of the shipping can- containers, all that. I don't know why you had to bring these guys onto the show. I could spend hours and hours talking about how that is done in the power world. Because what they had to provide would be way more interesting than what you would have to say. Wow. So when your power goes out, I'll remember that, big boy.
0: <laughs> well, let's go ahead and bring them on. First, we have the Director of Business development for Gaming at GTS Distribution, Scott Morris. Scott, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me to talk about this hot topic and pressing thing on the lips of every board gamer. I'm so happy to see you guys and be here.
0: No, we're not talking about the pop culture fashion store for teens hot topic. We're talking about logistics. Oh, oh yeah, I so must be in the wrong that's room a, for an
1: argument that, then.
0: That, that's, a, that's another show. <laughs> and also joining us is the owner or board game necromancer of Restoration Games, Justin Jacobson. Welcome, Justin.
3: Hello. Good to see you all. I see how it is, though. Like, uh, you have Rob Davio on to talk baseball, and I get to talk shipping containers. That's, <laughs> that's nice.
0: <laughs> And and just to be just to be, let everybody know, uh, Restoration Games is a hopefully a proud sponsor of these <laughs> at the table segments. Hopefully, and yeah. this was not Justin's request to come on. This is our request to bring him on the show, uh, the show for this. So we figured since he's paying for it, he might as well talk to us. I'm
2: just
3: uh, I'm just following Ignasi. Anything Ignasi does, I'll do. <laughs> wow, my role model.
1: Nice.
0: Well, it is. It's just so funny that the episode right before this
1: had Ignasi. So there we go. So what I'm hearing is I'm getting paid by restoration to be here, right? Is that what it is? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, you are. Okay. We're paying you and Moon are right over my
1: sh- right Sweet. shoulder over there. You see him. <laughs>
2: Hey, all you got to do is send us your address, and uh, Amazon can deliver anything, because they've got logistics figured out. <laughs> uh,
1: I don't know. I, that may be part of our discussion today, because I have a theory about that, but...
2: <laughs> Ooh, can't wait to hear about that, but yeah. y'all are doing well, everybody feeling good. Uh, yeah. I'm,
1: I think knowing <laughs> I mean, is half the battle, and I'm alive, so that's the other half. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Scott is hanging out in St. Louis, and... No, uh, I'm Jasmine's in Kansas City. Kansas, Kansas City. City. Yep. When I say St. Louis. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. They're the same thing. Yeah. And Justin's hanging out in sunny Florida. They're not the same. Yeah, thing. New
1: York, Albany, same thing. It's all
0: good.
2: <laughs> so, Marty, we said logistics. Now, one of the things we've been reading about uh, on various discussions on our Discord channel, people are always talking about, you know, oh, my God, the price of games are going to go up. We see all these things on ICV 2 and all this other stuff garbage that they're just saying, you know, you need to be doing this, or you need to be doing this, or I'm whining because I can't get my game in time. And now if it were me, I'd just look at you and say tough, (laughs) but we're bringing on the experts who know how to explain. Yeah, I know to explain to us, what is the market going through? And you brought up some interesting points before we hit live on the record. You told them that we are going to be discussing what two aspects.
0: Well, first, I just want to kind of get and and reason why we have these two gentlemen on is Justin's coming from the publishing aspect, right? So he's making the game and then he has to get it uh, produced and then shipped over. And then basically distribution, Scott takes that and, you know. Uh, has a warehouse and then start sending them out to retailers and stuff. So then get them in the hands of the customer if the publisher's not selling direct off their site. So we're seeing two different sides of how this works. And I, I thought before we even get started and what's going on today, why are there delays? Why are the costs going up? Let's talk about pre-COVID. What was the whole process and what was it like? Before all this happened, how long did it take to get a game? How expensive was to get a game shipped from China, which is typically where it's typically manufactured? Let's start at the top. Let's say the publisher: we need to get a game made and manufactured and shipped to us from China. How did it used to be,
3: Justin? Uh, it's funny. What it, Rob always used to joke about how medieval the whole the whole process is. Like you do this thing where you're making a game, and we are so advanced in so many ways, but at the end of the day, it's got to get on a boat and sail across the ocean blue and hit the shore and somebody's got to offload it. And obviously the boats are a lot bigger and a lot of other stuff has changed. But you know, if you just stop and think about all the stuff that's in the store is getting there because it's going from somewhere, not most of it, obviously manufactured a lot of it in China, but other places, it's getting on a boat in a container, getting loaded onto that boat, taking a long trip across the ocean, getting into a port, getting unloaded at a dock, then it's going on a train or a truck, sometimes both, headed to some other warehouse, and then it's going from that warehouse to another warehouse, and then so finally it's, you know, hitting that loading dock and getting onto your shelf. Um, so it's a, it's an involved, complicated process. There's lots of moving parts. You're talking about international, uh, different countries, so international laws, maritime law. Um, there's a whole area of customs law and, and things like that that you have to deal with. It's extremely complicated. Uh, and so honestly, one of the things that I think most uh, publishers of any size do is they hire a logistics company. Uh, we're currently using Arc Global, uh, but there are other companies out there. And they sort of are in the service of overseeing that part of the process. They book the containers, they deal with the customs forms, they do all that, and then you pay them a, a fee for the service. That's what we would do. We would order uh, make an order with the manufacturer to print up a, a certain number of games. Usually we do if it's a new release for us we might do like 10,000 units of a game if we're pretty confident about how it's going to do. And when that gets ready closer to when it's getting ready to be completed by the manufacturer, we notify our logistics partner. And we say we've got these 10,000 units we do what's called a shipping plan uh, and notify both the manufacturer and the logistics company and they say okay, the cartons are this size, uh, they weigh this much, are they going to be on pallets or not? Uh, are we going to get a 20-foot container or a 40-foot container? You know, Do we have a full container or is it something less than that? And then they take that information and they can calculate, You know, based on those dimensions and the weight and all that, they can book passage on a freighter. So they'll get with that freight company and they'll arrange that for us. And they sort of do all, it would sort of set it and forget it for us once we do that, which is great. Uh, And then it shows up on the other end and they deal with all the import, uh, you know, arrangements and things like that. And they arrange for it to get to the warehouse. And at some point it's going to show up in our warehouse. So we use PSI as our fulfillment company. They have a big warehouse and they deal with distributors like Scott's uh, company. Then they take those games and they'll sort of disperse it. But that process used to be pretty straightforward. You'd order the games, you'd send the shipping plan couple weeks later, it'd be on a boat, take about six weeks to get across the water, depending on where you're going from China to, we would use, a since PSI is in Georgia, we would use a, the Savannah port, which is a very big port on the eastern seaboard, take about six weeks, go through the, the uh, Panama Canal, uh, and take another couple of days to get off the boat and into uh, their warehouse. And then... Thirty days later, um, it's showing up uh, in distribution, and and Scott can obviously talk about the rest of that. But that's sort of the way it's supposed to work.
0: So it was uh, basically, if I add all that up, uh, basically two weeks to give them a heads up, get it on six weeks to get over. So you're talking about eight weeks basically from saying we want it, then eight weeks later it's in the sh- it's in the warehouse.
1: Pretty much, yeah. Okay. The killer in that whole process is that it usually only takes an average of about 18 days once it's on a boat to go from port to port. It's all the rigmarole and all the, the paperwork and all of the stuff beforehand and afterhand with customs and everything that can really like drag stuff like that out before COVID, right? I mean, I would run into people when they were running into Chinese New Year or other holidays that could impact shipping – You could sometimes see, you know, delays in ports by like four to five weeks sometimes, which, you know, could take a six to eight week process and turn it into a three month process or maybe even three and a half month process and take, take a lot longer than expected. You left out all the sexy parts, Justin, about like the pirates (laughs) and the tsunamis and the, the megalodons and. Uh yeah, I mean that's like I said that's the
3: sexy part and that's what insurance is for, so you know. <laughs> yeah, I was going
1: to I was going to say any publisher who's listening to this who doesn't buy container insurance, if you take anything away from this, buy container insurance. It's so worth it. I'm not going to confirm or deny that I have an entire container of some game that I made in the past on the bottom of the ocean. But I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So, Scott, so it's in a warehouse and needs to get to the distributor. And uh, you can talk some of this, too. We actually have a, a friend of ours uh, who's in uh, logistics. He books trucks and stuff. And he's having a lot of problems yep. with getting people to be able to work. And, and truck drivers, not enough of them and stuff. And that's probably what we're dealing with now. But in a normal yep. situation, where do you pick up from there and get it to the us, the customer?
1: Yeah. So, so a good vast majority of what we do on the distribution side is kind of linear past what Justin had just described, right? So he'll, he'll get it landed into a warehouse. They'll contact us and let us know it's there. Um, for some of our partners, though, like a lot of our exclusive partners, we will do importing for them and manage all of the stuff that Justin was talking about that a publisher would normally do, but we'll do it for them on, on kind of like a all grade basis kind of thing. In pre COVID times, uh, it was, pretty smooth. I mean, once something has actually gone through customs, and it's legally in the United States, moving it around from warehouse to warehouse really just comes down to a matter of people and bandwidth. And how quickly can you load something onto trucks? How quickly can those trucks move from place to place? The other challenge, like Justin had talked about, was if uh, if you have an advantage of going to an eastern or western port, and your warehouse is right near there, that's really good. Because the stuff lands on a cargo container, it can be offloaded onto a truck and just delivered right to the warehouse. If you have something that's more inland... Then you may potentially have to put something on rails and do it by train to go to a rail yard. So like Justin was saying, there's sometimes where things can go from a boat container to a storage container to a cargo container in a truck yard to a cargo container in a rail yard to another cargo container in, I mean, it just, it's like this giant domino effect, right? And all of that can, all that means people, all that means time, right? And in pre-COVID, it was pretty quick. I mean, we would get notified by a publisher saying, Hey, we got this stuff in. We'd be able to, you know, get them orders within a matter of like a week and they would get us product in the matter of the next week. And then we would spend the next two weeks getting that stuff out to retailers, usually all around a street date or a release date, right? And as long as the distributor has a product in hand like a week to two weeks ahead of a street date, we'll be able to hit that and have no problem with it. Um, so usually once something had landed from a publisher, we would see about a four-week turnaround time for us to actually have our product in the hands of our consumers, which is the retailers. And then once it's in their hands, it's just a matter of the street date, boom, everyone's happy, everyone's playing the game, and all 10,000 of those copies are sold, and everyone's happy, right? Post-COVID's a whole other story. (laughs) Let me add the timeline here.
0: So you're adding on another four weeks. So we're saying 12 weeks is typically what might could happen is like, okay, we're ready to ship this thing before it ends up on my store shelves.
1: And if you talk to most distribution people and most publishers, uh, you'll hear that, they usually tend to start ramping up their marketing around that time frame, about 90 days before the release of the game. That gives the, the distributor enough time to solicit and promote the game to retailers so that they're aware of it and, and kind of bring more remembrance to them of, hey, this game was announced and it's coming out and it's now imminent and it's coming out. So it's a really good timeline to go from like a T minus 90 to the release date on everything.
2: Do you realize that what y'all are describing is also how the power grid works? Yeah. Oh, my God!
1: Completely. <laughs> With or without expansions.
2: Exactly. I mean, you, you manufacture it, you put it on transport, it hits the distribution, the distribution then gets it to the houses. But thankfully, it doesn't take 12 weeks from the moment it's generated to get it to the houses. Well, yes. Okay, that's, yes. that's fair. Yeah. If it took me
1: 12 weeks to play a game of Power Grid, I don't think I'd ever play it.
2: <laughs> but you also, I guess, for both of you, you had a multiple choice of people you could use, maybe not so yes. much as far as the freight coming across the ocean, but you you can say, okay, I'm going to go with one of these lower bids. You could actually get bids or they would actually have competition, correct? Pre covid
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, again, we wouldn't do that ourselves. That's the logistics company does that, but that's their, they would get uh, quotes from various, uh, you know, freight companies to uh, handle that. And yeah, usually you'd be able to get a couple of bids, uh, you know, depending on on the situation, the time, and, and what it is.
1: The other thing that's really good to point out is that there's basically three types of containers that get shipped with board games there's 20 foot, there's 40 foot, and there's 40 foot HQ. The 40-foot HQ is just a little bit taller and you can fit a little bit more in it. And it usually all comes down to you know weight, size, dimensions, all that stuff. Prior to COVID, we're talking like January, February time frame of, of 2020. We were paying sub-five thousand dollars per 40-foot container <clears throat> when something was coming in from one of our partners. That's containers that we bought as containers that we were managing all the shipping on and all the costs and everything on. So Getting it from the manufacturer to the port in China, getting it from the port in China to the boat, getting it from the boat to this port, all that stuff was sub $5,000. All right.
0: So here we go. (laughs) So post-February 2020, uh, obviously the, the pandemic hit. So what wrenches were thrown into the works? And how has it really gummed up everything and what's the result of that?
1: So as we talked about before, we got on air here and started recording. The truth is everything is fine and we just don't want anyone to have fun, so we're hiding on <laughs> the games.
2: So, <laughs> oh, you're like the the people who make cars. There is no chip shortage. Right, they're, they're right. Just yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: I have tons of Xboxes behind me. Yeah. <laughs>
2: so Justin, we'll
0: start back with you. What wrenches were thrown into your process? And uh, how are you dealing with it now?
3: Yeah, so the thing is, it's, it's super interesting. Uh, it, at first, it, it didn't seem to have much of an effect. But then basically, everything just kept stacking up and stacking up and stacking up until it just hit this breaking point. And it's a number of factors. Um, you obviously had, uh, like, for, but, and I say that it wasn't at first a big deal, but not a big deal. But the manufacturers themselves were shut down. So no one was producing anything. So that wasn't where the problem started immediately. But once that sort of eased up and the manufacturers started uh, producing again, then you uh, had uh, sort of the pent-up demand. You compound that by the fact that people were at home ordering lots of consumer goods. No one was out doing experiential things like movies and restaurants. They were spending all their money on jigsaw puzzles and board games (laughs) and, uh, you know. Uh, knitting uh, materials and whatever it was, right? So then that's when the demands really started to ramp up. Uh, and then also, uh, you know, when things like government aids came through and unemployment benefits, that all that stuff. Then you had all this huge demand and then you had everything sort of backed up at the manufacturer level. And so then everything started coming out all at once. There was this huge glut of consumer goods that were trying to get there. We're almost essentially even the best pre-COVID, we were sort of at capacity for ocean freight, right? I mean, it wasn't like there were a bunch of freighters and dry dock not doing anything or a bunch of containers just sitting around empty. Uh, So, But you still had all this stuff coming out. And then on top of that, you have all these other effects, like there were material shortages. There were, uh, you know, sometimes the ports would have to close down because they would have a COVID outbreak. So anytime one of these disruptions occurred, that just compounded the problem of things stacking up. And it's really just at that point, supply and demand, right? Like you have all these people, all these manufacturers, publishers, whatever, uh, producers, distributors, trying to get their goods on a boat and across the ocean, and only so number, only a certain number of uh, you know spots, basically, a space available. It's just volume, right? Limited amount of volume, and that's where the problem is. And it hasn't. I literally just I was knew I was coming on today, and I I uh, emailed my uh, my uh, contact of Art Global, and uh, I said, just I'm going on this show. I'm curious, is it Would you say it's still getting worse? Would you say it's stabilized? Or would you say it's starting to ease up? And he said it's still getting worse. And -hmm. they honestly don't think it's going to stabilize until... Some people are optimistic that after the holiday rush, like everybody... Now we're getting to the point where people are... You know, you're talking about all that time between when it's getting on a boat to when it hits shelves. So if you're thinking about Black Friday, you know, you're looking this month to try and get stuff on a boat for Black Friday. And everybody's doing that. That's obviously a st- still a big selling uh, period. There's some optimistic people think that once that passes, the demand for goods might drop a little bit, and then that might help. And then there's a lot of people who think that next Chinese New Year, which is in February of 2022, that'll sort of be a catch-up period and might take some release some of that pressure. And then you know, hopefully, again, assuming the pandemic starts to. Can flatten out again and and, and continue that way. Hopefully, um, you know I think everybody's optimistic that that will hopefully be the case long term. You know, then you'll start to see some release and some of that start to normalize. Until then, <laughs> it's just going to be more of the same, and it's it's just a big mess. And obviously, we can talk about what that mess looks like, but in big picture, that's what we're looking at right now.
1: That's good to hear what you were talking about from your your company, uh, Arc, because I. When it comes to our exclusive partners and importing their stuff, I, I play the logistics game every day and I talk to UPS every week. And the last meeting that I had with them about two weeks ago was very similar. They, they told us, you know, we were trying to think of <clears throat> all these different options about like, should we recommend to our partners to manufacture in another country? Like, should we look at other alternate routes? Should we look at alternate ports? Should we find some creative solution outside of what everything has been talked about already? It's not doom and gloom, but it is very much a, this is the new norm, right? This is the way it's going to be for several months. The one thing they told us was don't advise anyone to shift from Chinese manufacturing to European manufacturing, because a lot of the pain that we've been experiencing in the U.S. over the last six months is now going to start to shift its way into the EU and the UK, and that they're going to start to see the same types of demand curve and issues. It's pretty painful. You know, we've had... We've had so many weird things happen in the last six to seven months. I've been doing a lot of reading. <clears throat> one of the scary things I read was that at one point, there's, there's this term called TEU, which is 20-foot equivalent unit, which is basically a 20-foot container. <clears throat> but whenever you talk about shippers and ports, they always talk in terms of TEUs. And at one point, the port of LAX was backed up by more than 400,000 TEUs.
2: Which is insane. Wait, 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 what, what does that mean? I mean, they're backed up by more. They can't move. They can't offload. They they can't process. They've got All boats floating in the
1: ocean. If you look at there,
3: there's a great uh, it's uh, marine dot com. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it is. So if you look at and you you can see every freighter and every you know uh, tanker and every boat that's on the water. And if you zoom in on the port of L A, it has a special designation for boats that are moored, you know, anchored. And you'll just see that it's like dotted there. They're just sitting offshore and they can't even get into the port. LA is a hot mess right now. It's it's bananas. And then, I mean, you can talk about this too, Scott, but like even if you can get to port and get it off, now a lot of these people are having trouble on the intermodal leg of this where they're switching to freight or truckers. There's a yep. trucker shortage Yep, on all this stuff. So they can't even get it out of the port once it gets there. Um, and like I said, it's all just this domino effect from all that huge... Uh, backlog and then this huge demand and then everything trying to come through at once.
1: There's a whole extra point. So the, the website that Justin had mentioned, that's marinetraffic.com. It's a that's phenomenal site. You can see every boat on the ocean everywhere under a, a major shipper. And at first, when you go there, it looks like just like a bunch of ants all over the place. And then you start zooming in and seeing things and seeing how things are working. It's pretty amazing. But the the people aspect of this is another thing that hit because there was a, a major lockdown, obviously, in China. They, they went through that period. There were times that we were talking to people and they were like, it's wonderful. I have your stuff. I can't move it. Like I literally do not have anyone to sit in the truck and drive the truck to the port and be able to deliver this stuff to the port. And sometimes that could take like two to three weeks to go through because there were a lot of different protocols that different countries had about if someone did, you know, come into contact with someone with COVID or had COVID themselves, how they had to handle that from a business perspective. Then I learned something. It's funny. I've been in this business for a decade and I prior to this, I worked in logistics and, and business development in corporate America for 30 years. I never even knew this until only a couple of months ago. <clears throat> the majority of containers that are sent over to the U.S., they are not like wash, rinse, and repeat. It's not something that lands in LAX and then gets filled up with something else and moves back over to China. It's not like an airplane that like takes me from Austin to Dallas. Uh, everyone gets off in Dallas and then a whole bunch of people get on in Dallas and go to Nashville. It doesn't happen like that. Most of them are recycled and they're either recycled in the U.S. for some type of internal you know, use. There's a bunch of different things. There's a ridiculous amount of businesses that use these things or they're sent back to China and they're recycled in China. What that has caused is a secondary layer of, hey, it was already hard enough to get your stuff out of China and over to America. Now it's harder for China to get containers back. Because they're waiting for boats. I mean, there are boats parked in ports in China that are literally filled with empty containers and they're waiting just to get unloaded. And that's a whole nother thing. I've talked to some publishers who have seen product done on the first of a month, ready to be picked up, and it doesn't get picked up for five to six weeks. When that process would normally take like a week, maybe two weeks at most. So it's it's been pretty painful from a, a people perspective. One of the things that I personally really liked is a lot of our partners in China did a lot of stuff towards the end of last year where they gave people extra time off because they were just they were just so overworked and and just so hammered with everything that was going on that they just said look we need to we need to somehow do a rotation with our people and give them extra time off because they're just you know, from a mental sanity standpoint, they've, they've got to be able to take a break. So it's, it's been pretty stressful.
0: Now, going back to the numbers that you gave earlier, Justin, it was eight weeks. Hey, we're ready for the ship, the game. And it shows up in the warehouse about
3: eight weeks later.
0: What would you estimate that time period now for that? to occur. Instead of eight weeks, what's it taking now?
3: I can say I don't know because I haven't been able to get a shipment picked up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Between a week and eternity. Right now it's indefinite (laughs) is my answer.
0: Uh. Infinity.
3: Uh, We're out of stock on we just went out of stock on Cobble and Fall. We got like unmatched uh, three unmatched titles are going out of print now. Uh, Stop Thief is going out of print now and all this Mm. stuff. And we've got reorders over in China waiting to get picked up. Or, you know, either now or real soon. And uh, I just don't know yet. I just, because I haven't, I haven't, I haven't even gotten a quote back yet. I, I keep waiting. I keep hearing these stories about, oh, the container prices are so ridiculous. And I'm like, I'll have to take your word for it because I have not even gotten a quote back (laughs) yet. I can't even get a ridiculous, you know, offer on this. And the the terrifying thing of all this, of course, is uh, we have Return to Dark Tower that is now coming off the assembly line. Like we're just this. That is getting ready to get loaded up and go somewhere. And now we're trying to figure out what to do. And it it makes it especially hard because we obviously, for that in particular, it's interesting, we have backers in in China even, like specifically in China, that we could just ship that direct. We don't need to get it onto a, a container even. But we're like, if we get a container available, let's get it on that container and get it going somewhere else because that's going to be a much longer process. And then whenever we hit that bump where we can't get one, well, that's what we'll send to the the fulfillment hub in Asia to get that sent out. It's just, uh, you know, everything you hear, you hear the sort of uh, crazy stories about the high prices or whatever. Really, it's just nothing's moving. Like, or I should say, like, there's so much stuff that's trying to move that a lot of things aren't moving.
1: I think it's moving. I think it's just getting bottlenecked, right? Right, that's exactly. Kind of there's
3: it's such a backup that there's so much that there's stuff that isn't moving at all.
1: In terms of cost, I can tell you from my side. Like, again, prior to COVID, sub five thousand dollars. Now we're talking for a forty-foot container. Now we're talking twenty-five thousand plus. Sheesh. And and here's the real killer, like. If anyone listening to this as a consumer is like, "Man, I want my game. Man, I want my game," and you're and you're angry, and I and I get it because I'm a consumer too, and I want my game too. There's two aspects to think about that this. The first one is. People like Justin and Rob and their team and Susan, everybody at Restoration that – like he just talked about some of my favorite games that Restoration has, right? Stop Thief is something I play with my family like on a monthly basis. I play Unmatched all the time. I just got my Deadpool in, which by the way, it's amazing. I love it. (laughs) It's it's one of the best fighting systems out there and everything. These are games that publishers don't ever want to be out of stock of because Mm -hmm. if they're out of stock of them – that means they're not making money. And if they're not making money across multiple big sellers in their brands, that's a big risk from a business perspective. So while as a consumer, we may be sitting there banging our knives and forks on the table going, I want my game, I want my game. There's people in the publishing side that are banging their knives and forks on the table going, I want to keep my job. I want to keep my job. Right? <laughs> and, yeah. and here's the real killer that like really twists the knife in my back. Just the other day, I read an article about how every major shipping company is reporting record profits. And I'm like, of course you are. Like, I can go charge $8 a bottle for water in a catastrophe and make record profits too. But, you know, there's, there's a point in this where, you know, there is an element of time. There is an element of money and costs, but the two seem so far out of whack right now that it's just very, very painful. I mean, you got to think about if you have a big game, um, and, you know, some of the games that Justin mentioned, you know, Stop Thief is in a, an average size 12-inch 12, 12 box, if I remember right. I know a lot of the, you know, the Cobble and Fog game, the, the Legends games, those are in like carcassonne size kind of boxes. You have a landed cost as a publisher that says, I have this many thousand games in the container. It costs me this many thousand dollars. Therefore, if it cost me $5 to print the game and another dollar per game to ship it, then I'm looking at a $6 landed cost, so I'm probably charging a $30 MSRP. And I'm really oversimplifying that right now, but it's just to kind of put it in perspective. When you're dealing with sub $5,000 costs, you're dealing with less than a dollar per game usually. When you're dealing with $25,000 costs, you could literally be paying more to ship the game per unit than it costs to physically make the game per unit. Wow!
3: I mean, I can put specific numbers on that. So, for example, I, we just have a container estimate for this. So, for unmatched uh, four pack like Battle Legends Volume Two, we have a shipping plan that we have in place. That we, we get about five thousand copies of that game on a forty-foot HQ container. And so, you're if you talk about an extra twenty thousand, that's an extra four dollars per game, which is a little bit less than what the unit cost is. And that's the premium. That's not the cost. That's the additional cost that we're paying right now.
1: And that's just to get it from China to right. the U.S. That doesn't constitute any additional shipping cost you may have. Shipping to PSI, shipping to your distribution partners. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing when you start to think about that. And... It's even more amazing when you think about the fact of this. I just heard an announcement that there's a new Puerto Rico coming out, and I'm thrilled because I I really like the mechanics of that game. Puerto Rico was like a $60 game when it came out, like 15 years ago. It would probably be a $60 game today. There has been no inflation in this market space whatsoever. There's no way that I could look at the price of anything that I can think of, even like milk, like everything has gone up in the last 10 years. But a game that I paid $60 for 10 years ago, there's still a perception that it should be $60 today. When the truth is, everything is going up now. Costs of components are going up. Plastic is going up. Wood is going up. Paper is going up. And, and those are the things that make board games, right? Until we find a way to make everything 3D holographic. But I'm sure Rob's working on that somewhere. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> so a couple points in, after all that discussion. You're talking about a system that was already at capacity, shipping. Then we had mass consumerism, which drove stock down. And then you needed to replenish that stock. And then once it gets here, it's all that congestion. And the final most important thing that Scott said, Marty, was if anyone is listening to this. I don't know if you picked up on that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, the answer
1: is probably not, or at least not paying attention. There's six people in the industry that think we're having a really good conversation right now. All the consumers are like, blah, blah, blah. Where's my dark tower?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but to that point is, but Scott, is your warehouse is now empty? If Justin can't move the games to you and he is selling out of all these games, are your warehouses empty and you're just sitting there looking at bare shelves? I mean, and, and are we going to have... Is there going to be a shortage as we go towards the holidays of our favorite type of entertainment?
1: The answer is yes and no, right? So um, is, are the it's warehouses? yes and there? no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean, it, it, it's different, right? So, like, if and, and I've always said this, right? Because I've spent time. I ran Arcane Wonders as vice president of business development. I I was president of Passport, so I did publishing. I've run a retailer. I've kind of sat in every single chair except for manufacturing, and I don't want to move to China. I just kind of like it where I am, so we'll leave it at that. But the reality situation is that if one publisher, from a distribution perspective, if one publisher goes out of stock of a majority, if not an entire line of games, there are hundreds of other publishers that we work with, literally hundreds, and someone's going to have stuff. And this is what I've been telling a lot of our retailers going into Q3 and Q4 this year. This is going to be, I think, the most successful Q4 the gaming industry has ever had. And I think it's going to be the most challenging because the entire key is going to be availability. And I think we're going to get to a point, especially late September, early October into early November, right before Black Friday, where a lot of retailers are really going to be in that mode of what's on the truck. Like, what well, can you sell me? I, I would love to get the hottest thing. I would love to get the newest thing, but I just need a box on my shelf. I want to sell product. I have people coming in. I mean, our hope, like Justin said, is things start to flatten out and people, you know, get out more and more consumers are buying stuff. But I mean, the reality is there's a lot of retailers that have gotten really creative and they don't necessarily need people to come into their stores anymore. They do, but they're doing a lot of online ordering and a lot of online community building, which is helping them grow their businesses. But if that's the case, they still need product to be able to sell to those people. So from our standpoint and the distribution side, it kind of is a little bit like Hail Hydra because you cut off one head and another head will grow back. It's just a matter of... Not everybody is a Restoration Games. Not everybody is an AEG. Not everybody is a Yellow, right? If somebody big that has a – not just a popular game has a line of popular games and they go out of stock – that can be really, really painful, right? Because you have a lot of those steady eddy things. I mean, unmatched is now at a point where I feel, and, and I'm pretty dug into it. I've got everything that's ever been made for it. But when I talk to people and I say unmatched, they know what it is. It, it, there's not a, a question mark as to what is that game? I've never heard of it or I've never seen it, especially ever since the Buffy one that got a lot of attention, you know, from a broader, you know, kind of attention span. That can be pretty painful and, and it's going to be advantageous to the little guys, the guys who are independent publishers, the guys who have been trying to get into distribution and maybe not been able to get in, or the guys who just happen to have stock at the right time whether they're small or mid or big, if they have it at the right time, there's going to be key opportunities during that time frame where they're going to be able to strike while the iron's hot.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. Prior to this, obviously, we were sort of having a glut in the, on the publishing side. There were lots of new publishers. You know, Kickstarter had made it viable for a lot of new people to enter the market, uh, which is, I think is great. I think it's really healthy for the, the sector in general. A lot of those people, there's a lot of stuff that was already in motion that's still sort of working its way through the pipeline. Um, and then you also obviously have people who are manufacturing domestically. Uh, there's still issues, but they're much more manageable. Um, we're actually, you know, a lot of people say, why don't you just make, you know, games locally? And I, I, I've said this a million times, and I'll say it again. That's great unless your game has plastic in it, in which case it's literally you can't manufacture it here. And I'm not even talking about like, oh, we'd be willing to pay a premium or, you know, you can sell just direct to consumer. Like there literally aren't the facilities to make those. Games with all the miniatures and stuff in them.
0: and I'm glad you brought that up because that's a little side thing because we'll come back to other stuff in a second because that's always asked all the time. So let's let's make, I want to make sure we understand why. There's no place here in the U.S. that can manufacture plastic components for games? Is
2: that what I'm hearing? Well, I heard this when we got on, Scott's 3D printer's running.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you laugh. That's what a lot of people may be doing. I mean, (laughs) it's... uh...
3: There are obviously manufacturers who maybe have the theoretical capability to do it, but they don't make plastics for board games. They're making other things. Yeah, they're
1: making plastic for semiconductors or PVC piping and stuff like that. Like You you go to a U.S. manufacturer that deals in PVC piping and you tell them you want to make a board game with 140 miniatures, they're going to look at you like, Huh? Like Monopoly? What are you
3: talking about? And it's about? not like they're lacking for business, so it's not like they, oh, well, we better diversify into board games, you know.
0: <laughs> so, so I, I'm the, I'm the consumer banging. Why can't I get my game? So the next thing was, well, why doesn't somebody open up a foundry that can make these plastics for us?
3: Well, you're, you you look at the investment to to. Start something up like that and then think about it.
0: Hold on a second. Tony is giving me how. what a stupid question. Tony, I know and the answer to this, but this, yes. people are asking it. <laughs> so sure. I want to
2: hear it. Well, I'm sorry, but to me, I'm thinking, oh, like you can quickly turn around a manufacturing plant in less than a year. <laughs> Come on. People may not be
0: may not understand that though. So that's why we're have the experts on. <laughs>
3: It's, it's, it's a number of things. So first of all, like the machinery and the, the, just the, the infrastructure to do it is it's pretty impressive. Like it's not just like where you have one big machine and you can run it out of your garage or even a big warehouse or whatever. It's a number of different machines, a number of different things. You also have to get the materials for it, which is not always easy. there's no supply line set up for that. And you think about all, and then obviously there's also the, just the institutional knowledge and the uh, n- labor uh, experience. You know, we talk about Chinese labor and there are certainly issues with that. But one thing that they have is institutional knowledge of how to make these things that you just don't have here. You'd have to build all that up. And if you want to say, great, I think that's something to strive for. I, I, you know, I think a lot of people would like that, but you would have to start doing it now and, and sort of be building towards the future and then, if you think about it, if your expectation is that this will ease up sometime next year, and then things will go back to "quote unquote" normal, you're not going to make that you know millions of dollar investment to to start that on the hope that people continue to make their board games in the U.S. afterwards. Now, there are a handful of U.S. manufacturers, but again, they're you know you're just looking at paper and cardboard and things like that. Uh, so, we have a game coming out that we. We're originally going to do one way, but we switched it around. So it's all paper now. We're actually looking to print that domestically so that we do have something that we can get in the pipeline and hopefully get out by the end of the year. Even that's not a, a guarantee, honestly, because guess what? We're not the only ones with that idea. So you have all these publishers now running to these local manufacturers saying, hey, we want to print this game. And so they're all backed up, too. Like we had one... Uh, one manufacturer, domestic manufacturer we get, tried to get a quote from, they said it's not going to get out till next year anyway.
1: Yeah. It, it begs the question of what can people do to alternatively solve the problem, right? If you go back to like the housing crisis, 2006, 2008, and you look at the price of gas and what happened to that. The, the price of gas skyrocketed. I I remember points people were like are we going to hit $5 in gas Are we going to hit $6 in gas? Like how high is it going to get, right? I think the highest i ever heard of was like California was like 4.80 or something like that. And that has come down, but it has never come back down to where it was, right? Gas was like a buck 70, a buck 80, boom, to 25 to dollars to 40, to 60, to 80, $3. Whoa, when is this going to stop? That same effect is happening with the cost of containers and the cost of logistics. It's 5,000. It's 7,000. It's 10,000. It's 12,000. It's 18,000. Whoa. When is this going to stop? Right? I mean, I've seen people predicting $30,000 containers before the end of the year, which is just like, I mean, that's just painful to even say, let alone think about or anything. So if you presume. Like anything, it's widgets and wonkets. Business is business. doesn't matter if you're making board games or tires or vaccines or whatever it is. There's always a curve to all of this from a supply and demand perspective. So when this stuff does start to come back down, and it will, the question is when, but when it does start to come back down, we're not going to see $5,000 containers again. We may not even see sub $10,000 containers. Like the new norm may be somewhere between 12 and 16,000 just off of what I've been looking at, what I've been predicting on stuff. So if that's the case and you, you start at point A at $5,000 per container and you end up at point Z at, let's say, $13,000 container, you've more than doubled your investment from a logistics perspective. So now you have to look at it from a business perspective and say, what can I do differently as a company and as a team to make this more effective for me? And quite frankly, the first thing that comes to my mind is box size. Like when I look at some publishers, I'm not looking at Splendor. I'm going to look at Splendor. There's a lot of air inside of a lot of boxes. And they're like bags of potato chips. And I'll, I'll pose this question to you because I've posed it to a lot of people and I've even posed it to people at Asmodee. If you were to take Splendor, And take it from the box that it is in, which is a carcassone-sized box, and put it in a box the size of Munchkin. Take it down almost 30-35% in size. Make it $39.99, drop it down to $34.99. But suddenly you can fit 35% more units on that container, and you can spread that cost of that container out by another 35% of units. You're going to tell me it's not going to sell. It's going to sell. People are going to love it. They go nuts for Splendor, right? Games like that are going to have to look at themselves and say, "Is this the right form factor? Is this the right box perception that I'm giving consumers?" I mean, we all know that. You know, if somebody sees a box that's 12 by 12 and it's 19.99, people are going to go, "Ooh, something's wrong with that game," right? But if they conversely, if they see a game that's the size of like a hundred count deck box and it's 49.99, they're going to go, "Ooh, something's wrong with that game," right? you know? It goes, <laughs> it goes both ways. But there is some middle ground in there. And, you know, if you go back to – I mean, look, we all got gray hairs. Well, uh, three of us do. I don't think Tony does. I can't see any from his shadows or anything. But (laughs) when you think back to like the games like Monopoly and Payday and Life and things like that, they were in these big rectangular boxes because somebody thought the right idea to do was to take a 19-inch by 19-inch board and bifold it and fold it in half. Then – Along comes the hobby and they say, hey, I can quarter that and I can bring it down from 19 by 19 to like, you know, maybe like eight and a half or nine and a half and it'll be great. The problem is there's still so many games that are limited in their box size due to their board and and what their their board or physical play space has put out in front of people that I think there's going to have to be a lot more creativity from a development standpoint when you're looking at it as a product to say, how many of these can I fit in a container how much is that going to cost me? And is this going to be better to do it this way? And now no one's listening to your podcast.
3: <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great point though, because a lot of people always assume that getting the game from A to B is mostly about weight and it's not, it's almost all about volume.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I would be talking to somebody, even our buddy Mark, if you take a truck, it's going to say, how many can I get on there and not have wasted space? If your boxes don't fit inside a certain container and you have dead space in that truck. He is losing money on shipping that. Yeah. So You have to consider all of that. And was it a good idea to start a Kickstarter in 2020 thinking that you're going to be able to produce a game? You know what I'm saying? Well, it's, and it's hard, it's hard not to go straight
0: to the classic FFG box with the Valley insert, right? Uh, nothing, right. Yeah. That's I a mean, good example. It's really nothing but air. And I, and, and you guys are, are marketing. I, the
3: expansions.
0: Yeah, I, I guess, <laughs> yeah. but, I guess the purpose for that is because they want a presence on the shelf. Is that why they make a oh, the box that size? Okay. Yeah. All
3: right. So it's, it's, it's for facing, marketing. That that facing. Yeah.
0: But as as we go to more and more, I'm going to buy online, so I probably won't see the box anyway to make me want to buy it. Then they, like you said, Scott, they don't have to be as big. This is really interesting. I have never heard anybody say that about, hey, shrink the box. I yeah. think that's just really smart
1: yeah as if I was in publishing is the first thing I would look at is how can I condense my box to make it both cost effective to ship but also effective for a retailer to be able to sell it on the shelf right
2: and and Marty, I don't know if you remember like it was either three or four years ago there was this Kickstarter where a guy sold these black boxes that had these little pull out shells right and he demonstrated how certain games could fit mm. in this card box that we you and I would you know store our baseball cards. And he said, you can get five games and then just carry this box with you.
1: There's an entire thread on BGG. And if I remember right, it's called, does it fit in a deck box? And it was the whole idea of what games can you take out of their existing packaging and fit them into a hundred count magic gathering deck box. And it's amazing. I'm not going to say, yes, I will. Splendor fits in a deck box. (laughs) It's pretty crazy. We're,
0: we're moving on now to uh, the future and impossible solutions. So uh, obviously, Scott, you, you've, get, you've given one. And it's really interesting to say, too, that you're probably never going to see the same cost for freight as what we do now. It's a great example with gas, right? We never went back to those low levels like like we saw back then. And if that means that the cost of freight goes up, then I, it's inevitable, right? The average cost of board games will have to go up. Yep. Is that correct?
2: Well, it's not just all the freight. It's it's everything on top. Well, of, I know. I mean, I'm just yeah.
0: I'm just saying everything, manufacturing, everything. The average cost of a board that sixty dollar Puerto Rico. The new version may be sixty five or seventy bucks.
1: Yep, uh, we've we've that is the number one thing that we have been managing through with our partners this year is SRP increases. Um, we've had several who have done big companies who have done increases. Very small, you know, maybe like you said, you know, sixty to sixty five or forty to forty three or something like that. Um, but that's definitely been a big thing on a lot of people's minds. We've had some partners that have done multiple SRP increases throughout the year just based on their own volume and supply availability and stuff like that. I, I, I joked around with a partner of ours that they have this, this, tremendously great evergreen game that is $50 and the first thing most people say is wow I can't believe that Euro is 50 bucks like I would have thought that was a $60 game and I told him I said by this time next year I think people are going to be saying wow I can't believe that game $60 it should be a $70 game right it's just it's it's got to happen and like I said it hasn't it hasn't in the last 15 Probably maybe even twenty years, it hasn't really had an increase on the hobby side of anything.
0: Yeah. So, Justin, what kind of pressure are you seeing on your prices?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of it is
3: because there's we've had this sort of bifurcation for a long time between hobby and mass. Yep. And I think the pricing can—that's a huge issue. So, for example, there's these sort of magic uh, price levels or prices. Well, on the mass side of things. So a $20 game versus even a $25 game is a huge difference in mass. Yep. Um, or even 35 to anything above 30 There's these certain sort of magical price breaks. Uh, so we have a game that we're looking at to try and get in mass, and it's priced at 20 and we're just going to make a little bit less money on it. But if you put it at 25 bucks, we think you know, you're probably just not going to do it. Then we've got another problem uh, or something where we've got an established product line like a match where $40 for a four-pack, $25 for a two-pack, it's hard to all of a sudden go and say, hey, it's $45 for a four-pack now. Uh, but it's something we might have to do. We're not quite there yet. There's some uh, efficiencies in terms of the d- development process that we've developed that sort of we can maybe hold on a little bit longer to see if we don't have to do that. Uh, but certainly a, a sort of a standalone game. Like we've got Key to the Kingdom out now. Uh, this you know the, These costs are things that we're factoring in when we figure out the MSRP for that. Uh, And things like that. And then the other interesting thing is, uh, obviously, Kickstarter still plays a role in this because you're still the the one huge advantage you have on in Kickstarter is you get ninety percent of that MSRP that you're you're getting or the price that they're paying instead of forty percent or you know a little bit lower depending on where you're where you're selling it through in the distribution channel. So you can afford obviously to absorb more of these increased costs if you're getting that high of a margin and there are people I, so for example, this uh, earthborn Rangers game recently came out. It's out on Kickstarter right now. I forget the name of the company. It's like earthborn Rangers company. Earthborn games, I think games, Games. right? There we go. Yeah. they are very focused on sustainability and producing locally and all that. They can only do that because they're going direct to consumer with Kickstarter. Like they couldn't be charging that price for this game if they were going into distribution. And so I do think you'll also see some people, heading in that direction um, as well.
1: I agree. When, when this all started, I, I told my, my owners and my boss that we're going to see a lot smaller, newer publishers shifting more heavily into Kickstarter. Prior to COVID, I would get you know 11 to 15 emails a week of, hey, I got a great game. I want to be in in distribution. And I'll tell you right now, if I had a nickel for everyone that told me they had a great game, I would not be talking to you guys from where I am. I'd be talking to you guys from the beach. So (laughs) there's a lot of people that have a great idea for a game. It's just like everyone has a good idea for a book. Everyone has an idea for a game. Or everyone has a joke to tell the comedian, right? Something like that. I think that a lot more smaller to mid-small publishers have had to lean into stuff like that. I've seen a lot more games on Kickstarter that I would not expect to see on Kickstarter, right? You you go back a year ago and man, the formula was real simple. $150, boatload of miniatures, everyone's going to go nuts for it and everyone's going to love it. Now I see games on Kickstarter more often than not that are $20, $25, $30 games that are very succinct, very to the point, um, I think of Villagers when I think of things like that, that the game Villagers, they just had a, a game called Streets that they did. Very succinct, very to the point, on par with the, what their community wanted, what the fans were looking for. And I think that that's been a big help for that mid-tier to low-tier publisher part of the industry to be able to sustain through this and be able to move through that. I, the one person I would not want to be in the world right now is the person that started their Kickstarter in Q1 of 2020, and it had a big giant box. <laughs> and, right. Yeah, I know. I feel bad for you from the Dark Tower perspective, man. I was all in on that on day one. I love Dark Tower. I have an entire longer story for a taller drink that I could tell you about that as a kid. But man, that, that's got to be one of the most painful positions, and at least... Your challenge has been the size of the box and really, I think, more the, the size and scope of that project, right? Because that is, not a, that is not a board game. That is a product that just happens to be a board game, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, our, our development costs were over a million dollars. So the, the freight That's stuff crazy. is kind of a nightmare, but it's sort of just under the umbrella of general nightmarishness yeah, of this yeah. huge project. So
2: <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, was that just Rob's bill?
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that's how that's
3: his expenses that
1: was what he expense. should
3: as, as much time as he's put in on this project that'd be a, a bargain i assure you
1: <laughs> i'm buying a porsche is not cheap as part of development so <laughs> that's true that's
3: true yeah you know it's funny i want to i want to it's it, sort of going back a little bit and also talking about what we we're talking about there's some other interesting sort of knock-on effects from this situation we're in that a lot of uh people aren't considering uh or, or might not think about the other issue with because of all the problems in the, in the, uh, pipeline, the supply channel, supply chain, uh, you're getting essentially late to your street date too. So you might, we talked about this delay. And so in addition to the fact that obviously the, the consumers want their game, like the, the people want to play these games, that's great. We want to get them to you, want to sell them to you, but there's also a whole other host of other problems. So for example, we have a, you can, when you apply for a trademark, the, you can't apply for your trademark until it's in in uh, commercial use, like until so it's on the, it's available for sale. And so if you and sometimes what we do, we've done this in the past is you apply for a trademark registration with a notice of intent to use within a certain period of time. And if you can't actually get it on the shelf within that period of time, you sort of miss your window and you have to reapply. and it's a whole big thing. So that's been an issue for us. We've bumped up against that a few times. Um, you've also got, uh, you might even have a licensing requirement. If you're working on, with a license, whether it's through an IP or a, a designer, you might've said, hey, we're gonna get this game on the shelf on a certain date. And when you sign that contract two years ago, you say, oh, we'll get the game on the shelf in two years, no problem. You aren't counting on it taking six months longer just to get it on the shelf. Yep. Uh, so that's that's a big issue. Or if you like, for example, if you've got a license with a big IP and you're projecting sales for a, a calendar year, and now it's six months later, that's six months of sales you don't have within that period of time. And then even we're starting to hear some stuff about uh, in mass market, when you sign, when they order your game, you've you've got committed to them that you're going to get it by a certain on, on in stock, these stock guarantees. And if you miss that window, not only does it not go on the shelf, but you actually owe them a penalty. And the stores have already said that, you know, these problems we're having, that's your problem, not ours. Uh, so they're charging those penalties. So those are all these things that can happen. So I think you're going to see some publishers, in whatever sense, right now, when they're starting on a new project, taking those things into consideration as well when they're when they're planning them, and just sort of everything's getting going to get extended out.
1: You know, I used to when I was on the publishing side of the business, and I'm sure you get this all the time, Justin, or members of your team do. We would go to you know conventions, these these ancient artifacts of the industry that used to happen <laughs> ages ago. And I would get tons of people that wanted to have meetings with me about pitching their game designs to me. And one of the questions I'd always get asked is, do I need to have an NDA? Do I need to protect my game? What What do I need to do with it? And I used to always tell people like, look, you could show me the most perfect board game in the world. You could show me and sit down and show me everything I want, everything my company's looking for to fill a hole in the industry, and I'm going to want to make it, like, sign the contract right now. That game is not, not getting made for at least nine months, like bare minimum nine months. And that's if everything goes smooth and doesn't require, like, years of development or changes or retheming or any of that stuff. So prior to all of these impacts... Even if things were going well, the one thing publishers could count on is once I'm at that point, once I have made the decision, I've developed the game, I've sent the files off to my manufacturer and everything is rolling, they at least had the stability of knowing, okay, I'm now on a 90-day clock, right? I've pushed the go button. This is when things are going to get to me. Unless a disaster happens, this should be good. And disasters were few and far between. And now, like what you've been talking about, like we we had all of these problems hit the other big thing and I always bring this point up is that it was a combination of all the things you said and the machine stopped. And when you stop the supply chain and you have to restart it, it's just like an engine, right? You don't, you don't go from 0 to 60 immediately or 0 to 100 immediately. You've got to ramp that stuff up and warm that stuff up. So it's it's pretty interesting to look at, you know, both sides of the table and see what was dynamic and static before and what's dynamic and static now, right?
0: Again, looking at potential um, solutions. Again, we're going to reiterate stuff you said. Make things smaller to get more items in for shipping because shipping costs may not go down. You have to charge a little bit more. And the other is possibly looking at other places beside China and for manufacturing. The reason why I bring this up, on our last episode, um, Ignacy shared with me how they make a lot of their board games with a manufacturer in Europe. And just this year, Asmodee signed a big contract with them to make their card games with them, Marvel Champions and Arkham Horror. And he says what used to take him... you know, a, um, a few week turnaround now takes four months. So these big gorillas are going, man, we need to move and, Oh, we're going to go here. And they go, okay, great. We want your, your money. But now they're pushing out the smaller publishers, so yeah, they
1: essentially buy the facility, right?
0: Right. I, I I may get Arkham Horror when I'm expected to, but now this other card game from Portal, I can't get in my hands for now four more months.
1: Hey, money solves all problems, right? That's been one of the funniest things that I've uh, that I've laughed about when this first started, like. Maybe like April of last year when we first started seeing pain. I remember one of the first discussions I had with UPS and they were like, well, we understand there's a delay. We're very sorry for the delay. We're trying to get through and fix this. However, if you pay an expedite fee, we will be able to push this through faster. And I went, whoa, 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 timeout, timeout. Did you just ask for a bribe? And they're like, no, 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 no. It's an expedite fee. I'm like, you can call it whatever you want to call it. If my timeline is one, two, three, and I pay you and it's now one, three, that's a bribe. (laughs) I'm like, that's the (laughs) way it works, right? And that's happening all the time. I mean, it almost seems as a joke, but I'm sure ARC is like this as well. The auto reply from a lot of shippers is, are you okay with premium rates? Because there, there's so many things that are holding up general shipping right now that the only way to really get things moving is by paying a lot of extra money, which, quite frankly, I mean, I, I love a lot of their games. But if you're an $800 million gorilla like Asmodee, yeah, super easy to just throw a little bit of money at it and hope that you get through it in six months.
2: So. Well, it was, a, it was a queue thing, I think, also, Ignacy. You know, if he wasn't in the queue, suddenly now he's fighting in the queue with the other developers, the other publishers. To, to stack his games in there. He didn't used to have to battle that. Now he's got to battle a, the, this q whole thing. And yes, I completely agree with you there. You know, we can go conspiracy theory all we want as far <laughs> as, uh, you know, paying off whoever you want. I mean, we're, we're back in the Godfather days here.
1: Yeah, a little bit, right? I mean, when you when you hear about all these expedite fees and you hear about the high cost of containers and then you hear about, oh, it's record margins and stuff like that, there is one thing we haven't talked about. And I don't know if Justin has seen this at all on his side, but I, I've seen a lot of it. I've seen from several different publishers revolving doors when it comes to people. because And what I mean by that is one week we have rep A, next week we have rep B. And, and prior, we may have had a rep for a year. And now we're getting like a new rep every week or every month. And there's just so much burnout because it's not just our industry, right? Where, I mean, we're talking about board games here. And I mean, look, at the end of the day, nothing we're talking about is solving cancer, right? There are way more important things that need to be on boats than board games to help the world right now. Though There are every industry, like Moon Pies. I mean, I cannot cannot describe everybody is struggling with this, no matter whether you manufacture widgets, wonkets, board games, vaccinations, anything. It's, it's going to be a challenge right now.
2: Uh, sprockets or cogs? Right, sprockets and cogs. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. For those who don't, that's the Jetsons. Just yes. <laughs> <for>
1: <laughs> now, there is, there is a whole other avenue of a solution here. And Justin may reach through the screen and punch me when I say this, or Uh-oh. he might reach through the screen and he might love me when I say this. I think the reality long term for publishers is they have to stop taking flyers. And what I mean by that is long gone are the days of I like that game. I personally like that game. I'm going to print 3,000 of it and see if it works. You can't do that anymore. When you're printing 3,000 units of a game, putting it into distribution and hoping it takes off because you have some other giant funding you of, you know, whatever, you know, evergreen game that's, that's pushing your money. It's great in an environment where everything is working. But in an environment like this, if I have to make 3,000 copies of a game and it's going to cost me $13,000 to ship it over here, that game better not only be amazing, it better be the first print run of 3,000 and I'm doing subsequent print runs. And my whole point in that is, if you feel you're going to be doing subsequent print runs of that, why even mess around with 3,000? You're going to have to pick games that are winners You're going to have to invest in the games that are going to give the best return from the consumer standpoint. And I've said this for a long time. There's a lot of games I love. There's a lot of games I don't love. I'm personally, like if somebody says to me, I want to sit down and play X party game with black and white cards. I don't want to play that game. Do I wish I had invented it? Heck yeah. Because it sells. And there's a difference when you're working in the industry about what you like and what you prefer versus what the market likes and what the market prefers. And I think that the really, really good publishers are going to have a good handle on that. And that's one of the reasons that I love Unmatched so much is I feel restoration. Man, I feel you guys have your thumb on the pulse of that community of what they like, what we enjoy, what we're looking for in future expansions. And that's a big, big factor into people making something more than just a game and making it a brand, I think more and more publishers are going to have to think that way. Long gone are the days of 18 releases or 24 releases a year. It's going to have to get succinct and maybe six or eight, but man, all six of those are going to fire and all eight of those are going to fire.
0: So Justin, is is that a hug or is it a punch? No, that's
3: a hug. <laughs> okay. He said some very nice things there. I appreciate that. Uh, no, I, it's funny. I agree 100%. In fact, when we started the company, that was our mindset. We, There was that period of time where people were, when games were really ramping up in hobby, where, man, some of these companies, I mean, Stronghold, Renegade, and, you know, that's a whole different model. Like, I'm not judging, but they were putting out games every other week. Uh, and, you know, obviously that was working for them. First of all, I, 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 we decided we couldn't do something like that. And so we were going to focus on, Fewer releases, but put a lot more behind them. We never ordered a first print run under ten thousand copies, uh, and for, with that same attitude, like we we better be confident that this is going to work, and put our marketing effort and push behind it, and, and and development and design and art and all that to put our best foot forward because we can't afford to have a, a clunker uh, doing doing that model. But you're also much more likely to give yourself a chance of success if you're focusing on that than you know, putting out more of a scattershot approach and doing more of them and just seeing which ones break through and you order that reprint. I agree. I don't. I think in the, today's environment, I, I can't see how that can work for that. And I know even before COVID, uh, certainly some publishers, AEG, for example, they had a big uh, uh, post about it. Uh, I think it was John who put that post out and basically said, hey, we're, we're pulling back. We're doing fewer ones. We're going to do bigger games. And they've had huge success with it. They put out some amazing titles.
1: Yeah, they've, they've grown quite a bit in my yeah, space. Yeah. I'm sure they've grown quite a bit in the direct space too. So
3: uh, I agree. I think that is definitely going to push that further in that direction for sure. And if
1: you think about it long term, and this kind of sounds stupid and silly that it takes something like this to even have this type of statement or discussion, but if you make the games better and you make the games more marketed, more, more retailers will pay attention to them, more consumers will pay attention to them, and more people will play them. It's it, it has always boggled my mind that people feel that quantity over quality is better. And again, I understand the models and I understand why some people would do that, especially when you do have some cash cows kind of funding that stuff. You can't afford to take risks in the hope of finding another cash cow along that way. But I mean, we all know, right, you know, it's 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 very hard to strike lightning twice in this industry. It's usually your work, you know, everyone always says it, you know, you become an overnight success by 10 years of hard work. And, and that's usually the way it works for games. You have to you know, keep at it and push at it to develop them and make them the best they can be, so yeah i I definitely think quality over quantity is going to be a big thing moving forward
0: okay, when we come out on the other side of this it's uh hopefully shipping can get back to somewhat normal as in as in how long it takes for stuff to get here, so we think that maybe that will eventually maybe normalize the call- co- forget the cost the cost is in flux, I totally understand, but you think we'll get back to somewhat normal, okay justin when i I can know I can get this game. Here on the shores in 8, 12, 16 weeks. Some known number now. Do you think we'll get back to that point?
3: I do. I think that'll normalize at some point. Uh, like I said, I, it, you know a lot of it is the pandemic. When people, when, when that starts to normalize, some of this other stuff will start to normalize. And the demand for consumer goods will you know, get back to a, a more normal uh, level. That'll take a lot of pressure off the system, I think.
1: I think it will, but I don't think it's as quick as people want it to be or hope it to be. One of the most interesting articles that I've read over the course of the last year was with the CEO of Southwest Airlines. And he was talking about how post 9-11, there was a massive dip in travel for obvious reasons. And it took the flight industry almost six years to recover from that, to get back to where they were at the levels of pre-9-11. And he, he equated the same level of impact to that business as to what's happening on the shipping side with COVID right now. And it's funny because, you know, when you think about it, you don't think about Southwest as shipping, right? I mean, they're shipping people and some people could joke about they are, you know, kind of shipping people because it's a cattle call (laughs) when you get on those planes. But at the end of the day, they're not shipping boxes and everything like that, but it is very similar. And I think that we, we've literally, I mean, like we talked about, we went from 5,000 to 25,000 in costs. We went from eight weeks to 20 plus weeks sometimes to to get things moving, that is like four times, five times bigger of a growth in the matter of a year. And that's just not normal, right? So I do think things will come down. Like I said earlier, I think it'll come down to a new normalization, not the old normalization. And I think it, then it's going to be, how do you adapt from a business perspective? From a consumer's perspective, I personally don't expect things to be normalized until at very soonest after Chinese New Year next year. I mean, we're, we're, we're preparing for the worst but praying for the best, right? That kind of thing. Even then, I don't think that things are going to normalize. As much as I want to hope that Chinese New Year will be kind of like a reset button and hopefully get things back to at least somewhat in the direction it needs to go – I think that that's also a two week period where you're shutting down and you're stopping the machine again. And that was a two week period that the industry dealt with all the time anyway, because Chinese New Year is a a huge Mm -hmm. event every year. And then, you know, everyone would have to manage through that in different ways based on logistics and management. But now it's happening at a time when so many other pieces of the system are strained I think that it's not going to be as easy as, you know, turn the lights off and turn the lights on two weeks later.
2: I guess one of the things that drives me insane about all this is people talk about, you know, the conspiracies and things like that. It's a global freaking economy. This whole thing was 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 not created so that this could take over or this country could do over this. We're all tied together, even though people don't want to believe it. And I think even in our own little niche world of board gaming's, it, it's a ripple effect across the whole thing.
1: And, and, you know, we there was a really good video. And I'll have to find it and send you the link, Marty, if you want to use it in the podcast or anything. There was a video of a, a business professor that he basically took it back and said, this is not a COVID problem. This is not a logistics issue from COVID. This goes all the way back to American manufacturing and European manufacturing changing with the Toyota model that became the first-in-time or, or, you know, in-time in time delivery Just-in-time? Yeah, just-in-time. Thank you. I couldn't get the word out of my mouth. That became the business de facto when Toyota became so big and so many different companies and so many different industries started to go down that model. He talks about how, yes, that's a good model, but it's not a good model if you don't have contingency plans. And he talked about if you put all of your eggs in this basket, it's wonderful as long as the basket is healthy. But if the basket gets a hole, you're going to start losing eggs. And it was it was a really, really interesting article to where he basically backtracked decade by decade going from 2020 all the way back to 1962. Here's what happened in this decade. Here's what happened in this decade. Here's what happened in this decade. And all of this stuff started in 1960s. And I was like, wow, that's Pretty amazing when you think about it. So I'll have to find the video link and send it to you. It was it was pretty amazing. Well, it's only maybe like a twenty minute video, but it was really really educational.
2: Well, gentlemen, I I would love to keep going, but our listeners tuned out about ten minutes when we first started, not because of
1: (laughs) y'all, but but because I just had a container of games show up at my house that I have to hide. So
2: (laughs) exactly. Um, But before we get out of here, there is something we need to end on a high note, a little levity. So Scott, what's something you've been playing lately that people need to experience? What's something that they, I don't care if they can get on the shelves or not, obviously they can't, but what game do we need to talk about here? What, what's, how's, how's it going? Or, or, or how about this? Maybe something that
0: you know that's coming up from the holidays that we know we'll be able to get our hands on that you're excited about. Either one.
1: I can give you both uh, really okay. quickly. Okay. Uh, so the one I just played, which I fell absolutely in love with, it has art from my, one of my personal favorite artists and one of my personal favorite people on the planet, Beth Sobel, Cascadia from AEG. Uh, and I think Flatout Games was the original publisher and then AEG picked it up. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a wonderful drafting area control game. It's absolutely gorgeous. It plays super fast. My wife and I try to do this thing on Sundays where we wake up and we play a game over breakfast with the kids. And we played that one this weekend and it was phenomenal from a time of cracking the box, punching it reading the rules, playing it four players, and finishing the game took 45 minutes. It was wow. just a tremendously really fun game. And I think that was, that was our Kickstarter copy, so I think that's just fulfilling the Kickstarter backers right now, and then it's going to be in retail after that. Um, in terms of what's coming up, uh, I'm really excited about the Dragon Prince game coming up from Brotherwise Games. Uh, it's based on the anime and we, uh, uh, very, very blessed and lucky to know, uh, Chris O'Neill, the, the owner of, of Brotherwise very well. And he sent me a pre-production copy and we were able to check it out. My son is a huge fan of Boss Monster, but he's an even bigger fan, I think, of Dragon Prince. And we, we looked at it and, you know, I'm always very skeptical about IP games. I'm always worried sure. about like, you know, is this really going to hit the mark and, and feel good? And I'm not a big fan of the, the anime. I've never really watched it all the way through, but my son has. And we got done with that game for the first time. And he said, this is wicked awesome. <laughs> I was like, "You like it?" And he goes, "This like it's got everything. Like I love it." <laughs> I was like, "That I mean, you can't ask for a better review than that, right?" So it was, it was really. F- and and the game is beautiful looking. It's got these these awesome little miniatures, eight little miniatures in it. It's got those like kind of tactical combat game, which is we like, as of course we talked about on match before and everything like that. So you know those hit home with our family and everything. So th- those are the two that I've I've really had a lot of fun with lately.
2: And that's going to be in the stores when.
1: Um, I think they're shooting before the end of this year. I think that's a licensing type thing where they have a, a time frame and they got to do things on that. I should know. I should have my website pulled up. I just, I, you know, hundreds of publishers and thousands of games. I can't keep all that in my head. <laughs> you can't. Come on. You're not I, that old. I can't. Old I'm dude, like Homer it? Simpson, man. If I learn something new, I got to drop something out.
2: <laughs> first in, first out. Yep. Now, Justin, I would ask you the same question, but that doesn't matter to me. Where's my Thunder Road Vendetta? Wow. <laughs> 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 Why? Well,
1: I-
3: I do want to give a shout out. I just played Ank, uh, Eric Lang's uh, game that's just coming out to Kickstarter backers, and it was amazing. I loved it. So,
0: so yeah, Tony, I actually have that. I got my Kickstarter version. So if you want to play uh, soon, let me know because I'm I'm anxious to play that one too. Yeah, I really dug
3: it. Uh, so Thunder Road Vendetta is going to be going to a Kickstarter. Uh, we're just excited because there's absolutely no Bluetooth involved in uh, this <laughs> <Yay>! game. <laughs> it's just just plastic and cardboard. We're very excited. Uh, but yeah, we're, so that's another example. Like uh, Obviously, we're planning on having Return to Dark Tower fulfilled by then. It'll probably still be fulfilling uh, after that. But we'll be looking to Kickstarter in October. Uh, it looks amazing. We have a cool artist on it. Marie Bergeron is doing the art. Um, and it's just a lot of fun. I, I don't know if you guys got a chance to play Test yet. Did you?
0: No, we but we, we we are willing to play a prototype. Yeah, we, can, we
3: will. So. Uh, we'll make sure that happens. I know that's it's on our list. But yeah, we're just we're sort of finalizing the the prototype and stuff to get that to people.
2: I was gonna say because I have the original, so just saying, just I, know, con- con- I know, compare uh, and just uh kudos. I
0: covered it in our last episode. I had a little segment where I talked about um uh, Deadpool. Dude, the Deadpool Unmatched is one of the most thematic ones y'all have ever put. I was literally laughing. So I did not read through the cards. I was playing card. I'm sitting there snickering. I had just watched Deadpool 2 uh, just re-releasing. And I was just laughing. The The art on the cards and everything, it is so funny. And it was so weird when I would sit there and play the game. And I would, you know, uh, play a card and go, and he goes, why'd you do that? And he says, because if I make an
1: explosion noise,
0: I'd do an extra four points of
2: damage.
1: <laughs> you know, those old things like that. If you told me, Justin, that Ryan Reynolds wrote everything on those cards, I would 1,000% believe you.
3: <laughs> it was, uh, so that, I mean, that the only reason that works like that is because it was a real labor of love. It was, and it literally, it, it was an insane project uh, to try and do because we actually came up with the idea and finished it in like two weeks, and uh, all that cool graphic design and art is Jason Taylor, our graphic designer. He basically stormed the Marvel art bank and like just stole snippets from here and there, and cobbled all this stuff together. And, uh, and the only reason it worked is because it was such a an insane idea in the first place. Uh, we were we were constrained by are you know doing that as opposed to just a regular project to to make it work and it it, it did come out and, really. and you I'm have really a lot
1: more marvel stuff coming up too which is going to be do, awesome we do, yeah i'm excited about it i mean you set the bar pretty high now for that <laughs> which is pretty awesome yeah.
0: and, and i tell you uh we're talking about you know if unmatched is evergreen now holy cow when marvel comes out yeah come on and, and then people who have never heard of unmatched Will have heard of Unmatched at that point. So, I am. It, it, what you did with Deadpool totally makes me believe you can make extremely thematic decks with the other Marvel characters and stuff. So, I can't wait
3: to see how those turn out.
1: You know, as a request, as an old fanboy, you could always go back and do Star Wars at some point. <laughs> you know,
3: so. It's the same, I listen, we get a lot of requests, it's the same thing. Too many ideas, uh, too little time. It, I and as I, I always tell people, I say, as long as you all keep buying it, we'll keep making it, which means that's right. the chance of the set you want us to make happening keeps going up.
1: <laughs> Every time people ask me if there's going to be an expansion, I'm like, as long as it sells, there will be an expansion. <laughs> right?
3: We love working on it, so we literally fight over who gets to make which deck, so we'll keep making it for sure, as long as people keep buying it. Who's
1: your favorite fighter and champion in Unmatched?
0: It's got to be uh, it's got to be one One of the characters in Cobble and Fog, Probably, maybe, maybe Dracula. I, that to me is my favorite. I'm a huge Buffy fan, but those four characters in that Cobble and Fog set is so good. I really I'm a love big those. Invisible
1: Man fan. I love the
0: Invisible mm-hmm. Man. That's who Deadpool played against was Invisible Man. It was kind of it was kind of a weird game because neither one has sidekicks. And so we're just chasing each other over the board and he kept teleporting. So it went longer than probably what it should have because of his special ability. And Deadpool can keep healing.
2: So it would be punch, heal, jump, punch, heal, jump. <laughs> That's what it was the whole game. That's funny. Well, gentlemen, we want to thank you so much for taking time out of your hectic and busy logistics schedule to come on to our show. Don't be strangers. Please don't. We'd love to have you back anytime, whenever Marty can get it scheduled. I'm just the guy who. I don't, what do I do for the show? I, I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> I tried to get replaced, but you. But none of. The, <laughs> I,
1: I promise you that I will continue to be strange. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: so thank you again. Very interesting discussion for all of our listeners. I hope you enjoyed this very special at the table with Scott Morris and Justin Jacobson. If you liked it, by all means, share it with your friends. Explain to them what is really going on out there in the world of board gaming and the logistics. And it's not that Scott wants to buy a new Maserati. It's just, it's the way it
0: is. Why we did this with, for, with you guys is because you probably get asked this a thousand times. Just send them a link. Just go listen to this episode. We explain it all there. That there way you're go. to keep saying it over and over
1: again. I don't think we solved all the problems, but we did have a very good
2: discussion, so I really appreciate you guys having us on. Yep, thanks. You're
0: not going to do the catchphrase at
2: the end? Oh, right. oh yeah, we can do that. We can do that. I'm <laughs> sorry. I, defer, I didn't know if At The Table had a catchphrase. So.
3: And we'll see you at the table.
0: <laughs> There's a catchphrase right there. Why have we been using that the whole time? That's why he's a sponsor. Oh. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Join us for our next episode, which is going to be our regular RDTN-type episode, except, boy, there are going to be a lot of games for us to talk about because we've been gaming a lot for the past several weeks. You don't want to miss it.